from Pacifica Radio in San Francisco. This is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, we'll speak with Nation writer Rafia Zakaria about her article, White Feminists Wanted to Invade, But Afghan Women Never Asked for U.S. Airstrikes. Also, the International Indian Treaty Council moves its headquarters to San Francisco. We'll speak to the Executive Director Andrea Carmen about the multiple struggles facing the indigenous nations of North America. And at the gates of San Quentin Prison, commemorating Black August with a Remembering George Jackson Arts and Culture demonstration. Jackson was a jailed Black Panther leader and revolutionary who was assassinated by San Quentin guards some 50 years ago. All this coming up straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. We broadcast every weekday from 5 to 6 from the San Francisco Bay Area over the Pacifica Airwaves, and we are happy to have you along today. We're also happy to have along with us Rafia Zakaria. Uh, she's a wonderful writer, author, attorney, human rights activist who has uh, worked on behalf of victims of domestic violence around the world. She's also a columnist for Al Jazeera, America, Ms. Dis, uh, Descent, and Dawn. That's Pakistan's largest English language newspaper. She's the author of The Upstairs Wife, An Intimate History of Pakistan. Uh, blue, uh, and uh, also, most recently, against white feminism. And that's what we're going to hone in on today in the context, obviously, of what's going on in Afghanistan. Rafia Zakaria, thank you for joining us on Flashpoints. It's good to have you with us. It's great to be with you. Well, um, we're starting all our interviews in terms of uh, Afghanistan, asking the folks who pay attention and know something about what's going on and who's uh, there, what you hear, what's going on, how does it look like, uh, what does it look like to you, um, what's your sense of the situation at the moment? Well, um, the current situation is obviously very chaotic. Uh, you know, the U.S. is proceeding with its withdrawal and the Taliban are in the process, it seems, of uh, setting up their transitional government. But the real issue is not so much what's happening right now, but uh, what led up to this and what is going to happen in the future, I believe. So, you know, in Against White Feminism, I talk about this war, the war in Afghanistan, being the first feminist war uh, that the United States uh, or anyone really has ever, ever fought. And the reason I say that is because uh, what happened in uh, right in the days after 9-11, well, I mean, the story, of course, as I write in the Nation article, starts with the fact that, um, you know, there were U.S. feminist organizations like the Feminist Majority who were running a campaign in uh, the United States called End 
gender apartheid in Afghanistan in the 1990s. So uh, this campaign got eventually the attention of Meryl Streep and Susan Sarandon and Jay Leno's wife, Mavis Leno. And um, it became one of those, you know, cause celeb for uh, media celebrities. Now, when 9-11 happened, um, you know, and this invasion was being was being planned, the invasion of Afghanistan, uh, you know, there, there was a need to sort of, there was a need for a good cover story, essentially. And uh, what uh, the people... Uh, Hello? Hello? Yeah, I lost you for a minute there. You were saying what the people... You oh, just I faded said the Bush, the Bush administration essentially was looking for a good cover story. And they met with uh, the feminist majority and other leaders uh, of the feminist movement. And what came out of that was the speech that Laura Bush gave, which you know famously said, we're going to fight this war to liberate Afghan women. And that line was you know, repeated by everybody. And of course now, like when I'm talking about this, people are like, no, well, not all feminists supported the war, not all white women supported the war. But I remember distinctly in 2001 um, just how impossible it was to create any space at all to mention, for instance, that, uh, in you know, the indigenous Afghan women's organization, like uh, the revolution, uh, the Rawa, you know, um, uh, was opposed to the war, as were many other uh, Afghan women's organizations. But there was just no room for that, uh, you know, for that critique at all. And so, uh, you know, now, of course, the U.S. is leaving. And because that story is still being, uh, is still the cover story, it's like, oh my God, now we're going to leave. And so Afghan women's lives are going to be uh, hell. And the fact is, is that Afghan women's lives have been hell for two decades. Afghan women have faced more casualties. They've seen their families destroyed, their villages bombed by drones by American aircraft. I mean, Afghanistan has been transformed. So, of course, life was already hell for the majority of Afghan women. The U.S. facilitated an aid economy in Kabul, uh, which, you know, did employ some women as interpreters and in, in, in those sorts of roles. But now that the money is going to be gone, that aid economy will also collapse. So there's a need for, uh, you know, a reality check of both what Afghan women have gone through and what awaits them uh, that goes beyond maintaining this cover story of, oh, the U.S. was, you know, doing all these good things over there. Let me come in here. First of all, tell people you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We are speaking with Rafia Zakaria. Her uh, latest book is Against White Feminism. She has a piece uh, um, that's uh, by that name in The Nation magazine now, or it's online. Uh, and I want to ask you, 
uh, to take a moment to unpack what you mean by white uh, feminism and white feminists. And then maybe you can talk about that in the context of some of these boondoggle programs like the the one for some $408 million and nobody knows where the money went or what happened. So could you uh, unpack that for us? Yes. So by white feminism, uh, I don't mean a white woman who is feminist. Uh, A white feminist is, uh, you can be white and a feminist and not be a white feminist. A white feminist is someone who is unwilling to engage in understanding how white racial privilege has influenced the dominance of white women within the feminist movement, both in the United States and in the world at large. So you can be brown and be a white feminist for the reason that it's uh, a term that I'm using to describe um, a sort of unwillingness to recognize how white racial privilege infuses, uh, you know, everything it touches, including the feminist movement. So, uh, and the way it manifests itself is that the concerns of white women uh, are uh, essentially elevated as the concerns of all women. So the their priorities, their agendas, their ideas of what a good life would be, uh, their ideas of what justice means, all of those ideas are, um, you know, originate with white women, but then are used to sort of uh, be the template that, uh, that everybody has to fit themselves in, you know, this, this ready-made template. Um, and that is precisely what was in operation in Afghanistan, right? First of all, we believed that the U.S. believed that this recipe of top-down, trickle-down feminism where, uh, you know, people in D.C. decide what's best for Afghan women in Herat or Kandahar or in any of the uh, 31 provinces of Afghanistan, uh, that they know what's what constitutes meaningful empowerment for them uh, is just ludicrous. Uh, it's ludicrous because, um, I mean, and, and, the, and the example of the program that you gave is exactly right. Uh, the program that you're talking about is the PROMOTE program. That was um, a USAID program that used more, more than $400 million. Uh, and its goal was uh, apparently to, um, you know, provide Afghan women with job training, and I put job training in quotes there, Uh, because, um, you know, so so that that was its goal, and um, included in job training were things like internships and, uh, you know, money to travel to conferences and, uh, you know, uh, other rudimentary kinds kinds of training. So this $400 million dollars, was supposed to benefit 75,000 Afghan women. And what the Special Inspector General found was that they could only account for three women having benefited from this $400 million. You said three women? Three? Yes, I said three. Yep. One, two, three. Okay. Uh, Okay. and, And the Special Inspector General 
said that USAID could not account for the rest of the money and, uh, and, and where it went. And so you see white feminism in action there, right? Because, the, first of all, there's a flawed premise uh, there in the idea that a country where majority of women live in rural areas where uh, one out of every three people is starving, uh, quite literally malnourished, uh, is, are, are women who are going to benefit from things like internships in the way like some suburban white teenager in New Jersey would benefit from it. And so first there was there were those sorts of uh, misunderstandings and miscalculations. And, and then, of course, you have this complete sort of, you know, when this news actually came out, uh, people like me, I was writing about it. I was horrified about it. But, um, you know, nobody in the U.S. media, this was a couple of years ago uh, that this report was released. And no one in the U.S. media cared at all. Um, about about you know how, where the money had gone or or the level of disdain uh, that existed uh, for whether or not Afghan women were actually uh, the beneficiaries of the money that uh, taxpayers were told was going to be used for them. Now, what you're talking about in terms of white feminism has implications um, globally and in the United States. Uh, we see this all the time in terms of the uh, black women and Latino women, Asian women or not. Uh, there's a, there's a, a real uh, impasse. There's a disconnect between white feminists and, you know, the struggle that black and brown people and real working class class people bring to the moment and what they would need, if you will, to ascend. Um, you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, uh, you know, the you're exactly right. Uh, the fact is, is that the way the architecture of uh, existing uh, feminism, white feminism, which is the dominant uh, form of feminism out there now, uh, is that it values expertise over experience so that women who are at the front lines who are actually fighting these feminist battles against men every single day um, you know and uh, in in you know the time of covid for instance have been the majority of frontline workers those experiences are not valued such that uh, feminist policy or, you know, the, the, the larger themes of what feminism should be are determined by women who have lived very privileged lives, who are white, uh, but who have sort of, you know, occupied the entire gender category. So whenever there is, uh, you know, a, a flashpoint issue, say even abortion, uh, it's not working class women who are black or brown uh, and, and, and their uh, inability to access safe abortions, that becomes the issue. It's all white women talking about each other and to each other. And, um, and so, you know, there's this sort of uh, knowledge system that's created to devalue experience altogether. And in my book, I'm arguing for the fact that we have to 
We have to value experience. We have to value, you know, the women who fight the battles have to have a voice in what feminism is and and what it should be. Uh, But that's not the case now. And, you know, the example about black and brown women is also apt because what? In the 60s and and in the 80s and 90s, uh, white women pushed to get the Violence Against Women Act passed because their whole uh, big idea was that if, you know, they forced the state to use its power to incarcerate people uh, and put all the bad men away in prison, uh, then the problem of, you know, uh, the lack of security that women felt uh, would be solved. And at that time, black and Latino women made the point that this is going to lead to mass incarceration. And that's exactly what happened. Black men were arrested at rates that were five times those of white men. And the jails were full. And black and brown women actually ended up facing greater levels of violence than before the passage of the act. So, you know, that entire framework was taken quite literally, like the whole thing was taken and replicated in the war on terror where um, the idea was that, you know, uh, now white women demanded, you know, they, first they wanted the protection from men and they wanted the state to act for that. Now, in, in the second round, white women allied with the state because they wanted protection from terrorism. And so there was this idea that all brown men are, are terrorists. And <clears throat> you have this 20-year war that absolutely ravaged and destroyed a country uh, which had not been involved in the 9-11 attacks in any direct way. Um, And, you know, yeah, go ahead. I I was just going to say that, um, you know, it's it's all the... uh all the leading sort of feminists that I grew up knowing and sometimes learning from, they went from a magazine, say Ms. Magazine, to spending a lot of time with the State Department. It's almost a way of being compromised. They became, in a way, war planners, which brings us to the present moment and the one of the points you're making that uh, we see White feminists self-proclaimed like, say, Nicole Wallace, who does two hours on MSNBC. She has an interesting background, by the way, with the Bushes. Uh, But, you know, they're all part of a cheerleading for maybe, you know, the troops shouldn't have come out. Or, you know, maybe there's a way we we could permanently kept the troops in to protect the women. And, you know, this gets us into part whatever, 96 of the endless war uh, with no help. uh, Yeah, because it's uh, the same, you know, the rhetoric from 2001 is being recycled wholesale because, you know, the idea is, is that, okay, we have to stick with the cover story. We have to stick with the cover story. We were there for the women. We were there for the women. So now we're leaving. So, oh, my God, the women, the women. Won't, some, won't someone think of the women? And it's ludicrous because we've been bombing the women for 20 years because, you know, there isn't some separate Afghanistan that they get to live in that is not subject to U.S. drone strikes and U.S. airstrikes. 
so you know so so it 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 just shows and i mean and and the greater problem within of what this is going to do is that you know there hasn't been a a better understanding of sharia for instance there hasn't been i mean clarissa ward is going around once again doing the whole burqa thing where it's like oh my god uh it's all that muslim women are are their clothes so now if they have to wear the burqa they're they're no longer uh free if you if you take off the burqa then magically they'll be uh they won't be repressed anymore and you know the burqa is an issue in the sense that yes all women should have the right to decide whatever they want to wear or not wear without any kind of state interference but it's not the sum total of who afghan women are or who muslim women are in general it isn't they are complex just like american women if you if you you know wanted to solve a problem for american women you wouldn't say uh well let's just all give them chickens and if they all have chickens they can have a little chicken business and then there won't be any poverty in america it sounds ludicrous when you're talking about this you know a program like this uh in relation to what american women but that is exactly the sort of thing that we do not just in afghanistan but all over the world in places that we have we provide foreign aid there's this this you know necessity to create this uh this magic solution that somehow well magic solutions don't work they don't work here they don't work in afghanistan they don't work in iraq uh just imagine if some of that 400 million dollars uh as some i can like barely even imagine um was used to for instance help grassroots efforts that would help women develop more uh gender equal interpretations of the sharia right no that was never done because the sharia is you know there's this wrong-headed notion that all sharia is bad which is the equivalent of saying something like the entire us legal system is absolutely bad and nothing good can come of it and you know it's simply not true because well there are many problems with the us legal system huge problems but that doesn't mean that it can never produce a just result and it's the same thing with sharia like you know the, the, the question becomes whose interpretation of sharia how plural will that sharia be uh how gender equal will it be and those discussions you know there are so many muslim feminists who have been working on those questions but they were they were not involved in the discussion uh you know throughout the 20 years and now once again they are not in the discussion it's like you know the heroine is is the white blonde woman who flew into Kabul to cover the stories. Um, you know, let, let, so let me just jump in here because we're running out of time and I want to, in that regard, um, just for sort of a, a contrast of what uh, people might be wanting on the ground there compared to the feminists in the United States, you, you talk about the organization Revolutionary Association of the Women of Afghanistan. Uh, that's, uh, you say, a political organization that has denounced religious fundamentalism since 1977 but how did 
do they, they, they certainly don't want uh, this sort of program we're hearing about now. It's called Over the Horizon. There's about $10 billion in the U.S. military budget for bombing Afghanistan from afar. So, um, but talk about the, 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 what this group, how it might differ from the women who came over to help and didn't. Well, uh, the, first of all, the biggest difference is, is that the, the, that organization and those women, along with many other small Afghan women's organizations, uh, opposed airstrikes. They were entirely opposed to war. They were entirely opposed to bombs uh, coming down on them. And the idea that feminism could somehow be dropped on Afghanistan like bombs. And the true fright that I have is precisely what you said. And the true fright that they have is precisely what you, you've said, which is $10 billion that are going to be used to bomb the country if the U.S. has a gripe with the Taliban or, or some uh, you know policy that they have or don't have. And we already know, we already know that the hundreds and hundreds of drone strikes that were carried out on Afghan civilians, repeatedly made mistakes, ended up bombing weddings, ended up bombing funeral processions. And the same thing is likely to happen again. So, you know, Afghan women's lives and their empowerment is tied up with whether they can be safe from these hegemonic interventions of the United States. And before that, the Soviet Union. I mean, I, I wish like I could express to your listeners what it feels like to be someone who is from a small country that cannot stand up to a power like the United States. How frightening that is. Frightening and how helpless you feel. Uh, you know, and... Um, I mean, I'm from Pakistan, which was not directly, I mean, but Pakistan's tribal areas were also droned. Uh, but I understand because of that, the, the feeling of precarity and insecurity that is born uh, from this realization that if the superpower just decides to bomb and everything, your village, your city, your school, um, there's nothing you can do to stop them. So the best thing that, you know, feminists, global feminists can do is to disentangle themselves from empire and whiteness, which is very much a part of empire. Wow. Well, um, we're just about out of time, but I'm wondering, is there one other final point that I forgot to ask or you want to share with us uh, as we begin to wrap up? Really appreciate you uh, your perspective and would love you to come back but uh, final words yeah i mean i think that uh it's important for american women and i know that there are many white women who have sincere empathy for the women in afghanistan i think the important thing to remember is you know we're all fighting the same patriarchal powers and we have to have empathy for each other and we have to be willing to examine our own complicity in the oppression of others. Uh, the book is, is an examination of that, and it's an examination of how many white women 
many of them unwittingly, have found themselves complicit in the oppression of brown, black, and other women of color. And I really think that if we can have this conversation, if feminists can have this conversation, feminism will be a much stronger and more meaningful and more political movement than it has been in the past several decades. Yeah, uh, well, we're going to leave it there for now, uh, but that sounds good. The book is Against White Feminism. It's uh, published by Norton, came out this year. So congratulations two on that. Ago. Um, yeah, two, two days, days ago. ago? Yeah. Oh, I feel honored. Yeah. We got we got in on the ground floor. Um, yeah. I'm so excited. We, we, we were very glad, uh, though, to, to have you on. We've been doing nonstop programming, and this perspective is so crucial um, uh, at all levels. Anti-militarism, you know, it's sort of, I don't know if you know that old tale about the guy who lost his keys. He's on the boardwalk, and it's at night, and he's uh, scampering around on his knees uh, under this one light on the boardwalk. Some stranger walks by and says, what are you doing there on your knees? He says, well, I'm looking for my keys. And the stranger says, well, are you sure you lost them there? And the guy on his knees says, no, but this is the only place where there's light. You know, and this next line is, and so to war. Uh, and there there needs to be uh, another way. So um, please come back and talk to us again. Absolutely. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. All right. Stay safe. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we will be honored uh, with the presence on air of Andrea Carmen. She's executive director of the International Indian Treaty Council. That's coming right up. They moved to San Francisco. Stay with us. Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. This is Dennis Bernstein. We are delighted to be joined by Andrea Carmen. She's executive director of the International Indian Treaty Council. We're delighted uh, that the council has moved, I believe, Andrea Carmen, that you've moved the headquarters to San Francisco. Is that right? Is my the, the little birdie named Miguel who told me that? Is he correct? Miguel's partly correct. Um, we moved our San Francisco office to a new location officially today. Um, I was just counting while I was waiting for you on hold. Um, this is 
actually, I think, the eighth uh, office in San Francisco that we've had, and we call all of them the San Francisco office, but it is our legal headquarters and has been since about 1986. Um, so we also have an office in Tucson, Arizona, which is where I work out of ordinarily, and that's just in the last three years. And we just last month reopened our office in Guatemala. So, um, but this is uh, a new space for us in San Francisco. We had a beautiful ceremony today. We're very honored to have your colleague, Miguel Molina, there, along with a couple of our staff from the Tucson office and some of our staff from here. There's a new American Indian um, cultural hub established at Fort Mason and the American Indian Cultural District um, invited IITC to be there along with um, the local Ohlone um, nation and uh, I think other others uh, will be joining us there. So uh, we had a ceremony to bless it and um, moving from our former spot in the Mission District and looking really forward to being in a place with other indigenous organizations and we have a small office there but there's a large shared space um, that we're going to be also be able to use and it's beautiful it's right on the water and you can hear the seagulls and um, all that Absolutely. coming off the ocean so you know we're we're just con- going to be continuing our work based in San Francisco from a new location but uh, we're really excited it's nice to um, change spots sometimes for uh, a breath of fresh air, you could say. And, uh, Absolutely. And we're excited to, we're excited uh, about that. We're excited to talk to you. And of course, uh, uh, Andrea, we always want to talk to you about some of the key issues uh, that are pressing down on the community uh, that uh, uh, need to be dealt with there. Obviously, you know, I have to check in with you on the, you know, uh, the, the new COVID, I guess they're calling it 4.0 now. We know that uh, the indigenous communities have been devastated already by COVID, uh, the various rounds. What's it looking like now? Or are we, is the, uh, are the indigenous communities, the people you work with more ready now than they were in the last round? Well, I think people are just digging in uh, for what could be another wave um, that would uh, further devastate our communities. However, um, I will say that uh, most indigenous people that I know haven't fallen prey to the kind of uh, QAnon um, conspiracies about, about the vaccine and see it as an opportunity um, to safeguard our peoples. I've heard, in fact, that we've talked many times about the impact uh, on the Navajo, the Diné Nation, and I heard the other day they had the highest rate of um, vaccines of those that are eligible in the whole country. They said 96% of those that are eligible for the vaccine have gotten the vaccine. So uh, from everything we hear, that that's going to provide um, some level of safeguards. Now they're talking about boosters, and I'm not so sure about that. But I know my tribe um, really did a lot of of, uh, promotion of, the vaccine and giving the opportunity to everybody and now anybody from the community they don't have to be yaki they can uh, they don't have to be indigenous they can get the vaccine at the tribe so i think they're really looking at how to keep people safe and of course people are using masks again now and um 
I think we're we're really quite vigilant, you know, and I'm hoping that um, we can not be uh, among those that are most seriously affected like we were in the first round. Yes, um, that would be that would be good news. Uh, again, you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're speaking with Andrea Carmen. She's executive director of the International Indian Treaty Council. Uh, and, well, what are the other issues? Now, you know, obviously there are various battles against the extractors. I noticed um, at the border of uh, California and Nirvana, there's uh, planned a giant lithium mine uh and there seems to be a battle in terms of california and nevada there seems to be a battle brewing there uh against lithium i'm wondering what's happening you know what are you watching on the extraction front because that seems to be a key place of uh resistance by the indigenous communities oh absolutely and i was very interested um I just heard the very end of the interview before talking about feminism and patriarchy and one campaign that we're waging that I think we've, we've mentioned here before is really tying um, the issue of sexual violence um, and what we call environmental violence, um, trafficking, missing and murdered indigenous women to the whole phenomenon of extractive industries and they've documented the high levels, say, around the Balkan oil fields in North Dakota, where I just was, you know, in North Dakota for a Otete Sakoan meeting. But, you know, in, in Guatemala, in Papua New Guinea, in North Dakota, in Alaska, you know, anywhere where you have these what they call man camps coming in with the extractives, that's one more level of exploitation besides the extreme environmental destruction that's happening. And um, I found it very interesting, just the tail end of that conversation about feminism. When you say you alluded to man camps and what you mean are these structures set up where a whole bunch of men come and work on various aspects of the pipeline uh, and it becomes, you know, a petri dish uh, for the COVID and it's happening in indigenous communities where they're putting these uh, freaking lines. I just wanted to give a little background on that. Do I have that right? That's certainly the case, but I was specifically referring to the issue of um, sexual trafficking as well and missing and murdered yes. indigenous women and of course the introduction of, of COVID from outside and you know the it's just an added aspect to what we're already opposing which is you know the destruction that happens to the environment to indigenous food systems to water systems to sacred sites to burial grounds it's the same thing you know that that happened um along the border with the construction of the border wall. And we talked about um, the destruction of a sacred spring that happened uh, with Trump's border wall. Well, now they found out when they were building it that they destroyed the um, uh, natural infrastructure of the spring and it's draining the water. The spring in the desert that has been there and formed a small lake that's been there since time immemorial. And it's also uh, an environmental safeguard for some endangered species, like a certain kind of turtle that, you know, lives in the desert, but because there's water there. So, you know, this just goes on and on. It just goes on and on, not just here, but in other countries. And indigenous peoples have to continue to mobilize because this kind of colonization 
you know, it's happening on so many different levels. I did want to mention something about our new office at Fort Mason because Miguel in our ceremony this morning mentioned about that this was a fort. And now, of course, the military has abandoned it and it is a center for the arts and for nonprofits. And now we have that American Indian cultural hub there that we're part of. But I was reading a plaque today as we were walking around and it said that that was where um, most of the military um, launch of the colonization of Hawaii happened uh, from Fort Mason. And we have uh, affiliates of the ITC, in fact, their board member organization, the Nation of Hawaii, that's battling to this day the colonization of Hawaii. And there's so many links. And I think, you know, you could say, well, we want to stay away from there. But it's like we've done at the United Nations. We have to decolonize these spaces that were used as a launching pad to oppress indigenous peoples around the world. And not only, you know, in California, of course, was, you know, where the first impact of colonization when we're talking about California, but, you know, it was also a launching, a staging ground for colonization of the Pacific as well, the right there in Fort Mason. And um, I think, you know, it's part of what we need to do now is take back those spaces like we have at the United Nations, you could say. It's, it's far from complete, the decolonization, but we have made a lot of inroads there. And it's um, really important we continue to take back those spaces and resist further um, colonization. I, w- I want to mention another issue that has recently come to our attention, and that's that in the name of conservation and environmental protection, uh, the countries of the world are launching something called um, 30 by 30, which means in ni- by, ni- by 2030, they want to set aside 30% uh, of the world's remaining wilderness and forest lands for conservation. And that might sound good, and in principle, we're for that too. But 28% of those lands are indigenous people's lands, where we've preserved the forest and the natural ecosystem and natural biodiversity. And people are realizing this is, this is one of the biggest planned land grabs since the, the colonization of um, this continent that um, we are opposing, we're saying, fine, 30% of your lands that are forest lands need to be preserved, but let them be your lands. Do not target indigenous people's lands. If anything, we'll form our own conservation and protected areas and by our own um, consent, and they should be supported for our own management that will continue to allow um, subsistence use, uh, ceremonial access, gathering of medicines, um, people's um, homes, because what happens when they create these protect, so-called protected areas, they remove the indigenous peoples that protected those areas in the first place. And in many cases, you know, they, they kill them and they call them poachers and they put them in jail for hunting and fishing where they always did. This is a huge international effort that the United States has already signed on to. And we're um, doing an international mobilization, but here in California, um, indigenous peoples aren't allowed to gather abalone, um, to gather sage in certain areas on national park land, which was theirs originally. And I just want to alert you to this because this is something that just recently has come to our attention. And uh, we've been asked 
International Indian Treaty Council to mobilize an international effort to combat this and say indigenous peoples will form our own protected areas on our own land and recognize those lands, demarcate them. Uh, we don't want to be part of a big land grab in the name of conservation, even though we are the original proponents of conservation and, and protection of the earth. So um, this is yet another um, campaign that's going on right now to this day. And and finally, we're, we're, we're just about out of time, but I, I have to also ask you, uh, last we spoke, we were talking about uh, the latest revelations about this uh, really attempted genocide in Canada and the United States in terms of the Church of Canada and the Catholic Church here in the United States in terms of these uh, Indian schools, which really uh, death houses for Indian children and meant to break up Indian families and Indian spirit. The, the policy in the United States of the boarding schools was actually called officially um, save, uh, kill the Indian, save, uh, save the child, and the same in Canada. And they, there are many anecdotal stories and even their findings, um, these kind of mass graves in the United States, and well, as well as, as we all know, in Canada. And these were um, places that were designed to... Um, kill the spirit, kill the culture, and in very many cases, we're seeing thousands of cases actually kill the, the child itself, themselves. And, you know, it's, it's reopening a lot of the historic trauma that Indigenous people suffered through the forced removal of our children, and it is the international definition of genocide, the forced removal of children from one group to another. So we're working at the United Nations and also with Indigenous peoples um, to try to force the United States to even admit they have this policy and practice because they've never officially done it. Canada had a truth and reconciliation process about it because they were forced to because of losses by the survivors. But U.S. has never even admitted to the practice, which, of course, constitutes genocide. So um, if you if you can um, keep your your show open to uh, hear some updates as we progress on these issues. Um, I would be really happy to come back and share. All right. Well, that's beautiful. We thank you for joining us. As always, Andrea Carmen, Executive Director of the International Indian Treaty Council. A pleasure and an honor to have you with us. Congratulations on the new digs in San Francisco. Thank you. And there's going to be an opening right. on the 25th of September. I hope you join us. Oh, Sounds great. 25th of September. All right. 25th of September. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Peace. Stay safe. And you are listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio, your daily investigative news magazine. We're going to remember Black Panther Party leader and revolutionary uh, who, George Jackson, who was assassinated uh, some 50 years ago. Uh, by San Quentin Guards. Right now at San Quentin, there's another outbreak. We're going to talk about that too. Stay with us.
And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. This is your daily investigative news magazine. And we are glad to have you along every weekday from 5 to 6 when we broadcast. So we are going to turn our attention back to San Quentin. Um, We want to remember uh, a very courageous uh, black radical, uh, George Jackson, and we want to remind you that uh, there's another outbreak. And uh, for instance, death row at San Quentin has uh, been locked down, and now, you know, there are many ways to die on death row, and COVID has been uh, one of the latest ways. Um, joining us again is somebody who I have a great deal of respect for Judy Greenspan. She has devoted a good chunk of her life to working with and for uh, prisoners and oppressed peoples in this country. Judy Greenspan, uh, welcome back to Flashpoints. Tell us uh, about what's going to be happening at the gates of San Quentin this weekend. Okay. Thank you so much, Dennis. Um, This is really uh, a very historic historic and also a very somber event in the sense that we will be commemorating the 50th anniversary of the assassination by not just the San Quentin guards by the state of George Jackson because he was hated because of his incredible organizing on behalf of people inside. George Jackson was one of the uh, incarcerated Black Panther Party members. He actually had a chapter of the Black Panther Party in whatever prison he was in. And he was a teacher, he was an educator, he was a writer, and I really urge people to check out his writing, particularly Blood in My Eye. So this Saturday at San Quentin, we will be having um, a rally and a cultural event at the West Gate. Now the West Gate is the gate that's closest to the Larkspur Ferry parking lot, which is where we're suggesting that people park. So we're meeting there at 10 in the morning, and then we will be marching, it's about half mile up the road, uh, to the West Gate, where we will ha- conduct, uh, there'll be a rally, and we have a truck with a cell, a prison cell, or a mock prison cell, on it. And that's where many of the artivists and activists will be speaking and performing from. We have a group of, of rap. Uh, people who some people may know from Oakland. We have Mr. Fab. We have Cousin P. We have hopefully Jabari Shaw and Timbuktu and others. We also have a number of community people coming and talking, you know, because it's not just George Jackson, but it's also Rochelle McGee. Rochelle McGee is one of the longest held, or he is the longest held political prisoners in, in the U.S. And just on July 15th, he was turned down again for parole. And Michelle McGee was one of the people who, who sort of uh, rallied to the opportunity to participate in the, in the Marin County Courthouse takeover by George's brother, younger brother, Jonathan Jackson, just a year before. We just celebrated last year the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Jonathan Jackson. And Michelle McGee has been doing hard time ever since. So um, it, it really is. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Dave. Go ahead. No, I'm just going to say, I think about these folks rotting in jail and the way the police treated the Panthers, and I'm thinking fast forward to gallows in the Congress. 
you know, with flags, you know, six million isn't enough, the Confederate flag, and, you know, they're going to do six months if they do any time at all. Maybe a few of them will do hard time, but I mean, people smashing into the uh, into the Congress and threatening the legislators, yeah. and they are treated one. This the 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 way the Panthers were treated bring you know is a clear definition of the nature of racism, and uh, this yeah. would be a place to you know, talk about Black Lives Matter. Um, this would be a place to make amends. Right. Forgive and, me, and, I didn't mean to people, interrupt. Yeah. No, that's okay. And people should know that that the the comrades inside, the incarcerated activists, have been criminalized the same way the government is trying today to to criminalize the Black Lives Matter movement. Because George Jackson was called a black identity supremacist. Rochelle McGee, a black a black identity what what the heck does that mean? He is black. And what's the supremacist? It's the system. It's the it's the racist system. But what they try to do, it's like the same thing with Black Lives Matter being being, uh, you know, categorized by the FBI as a as a hate group, as a, as a violent group. And so we have to turn it around. And, and what we're doing tomorrow is that we are going to turn it around. We are going to uh, I will tell you, you know, Black August, which began in California prisons, is is commemorated by many people behind the walls, people fast all month. And it is also a month where there is a lot of retaliation and fear against particularly black prisoners, but I would say black and brown prisoners also. Last year at Soledad Prison, which is also where many of this history started, the police did a cell extraction just right before Black August. They took all the black prisoners out of their cells and put them in a, in a cafeteria without masks on, with their hands, where they were hogtied. And after that, that's when there, uh, an, an incredible outbreak of COVID happened at Soledad. And what, when, when did that happen? Family? When did that happen? That when did that? Last July. Last July. A year mm-hmm. ago, July. And, and, and so, and what did they do? They, they, when you have a cell extraction, they go in and they toss your cell. And what did they confiscate? They confiscated all the writings by George Jackson and other black revolutionaries. And that's, and that's a continuing, they're so afraid of organizing by incarcerated people. That's why we're really urging you to come out tomorrow at 10 o'clock. We're going to start the rally at 11 at the West Gate of San Quentin Prison in San Rafael. It is really, truly an historic moment that we need to, that we need to claim for our own. And we also need to show the prison system that we're not going to be intimidated by the, by their attacks. And they, yeah. and they can. Uh, you're going to have what you're calling the Remembering George Jackson Arts and Culture demonstration. Yes, yes, and and so there are going to be all of the. There are going to be a lot of artists out there. As I said, we're going to be having the stage. There's going to be a, a prison cage. Uh, with a with a piano in it, and so artists will be performing from inside the cage. This has been endorsed mm-hmm. by a wide group of of organizations. All of us are none. The SF Bayview National Black Newspaper, Poor Magazine, um, the uh, Circle of Eight, the Cell Block to City Block, Hoods of America, my organization, Prisoner Solidarity Committee of Workers World Party, Black Writers, New Africans, and it's part of a national. Uh, organizing this year all over all over the country people are organizing commemorations from 
from San Quentin, from the assassination of George Jackson to Attica. And the Attica Rebellion took place in, in the first week of September 1971, and it culminated in a massacre engineered by Nelson Rockefeller and, of course, as far as I'm concerned, all the, the, ruling, the racist ruling class against the, the, the prisoners inside Attica who were, who were fighting for an incredible set of demands. So um, this is part of something being organized by Jailhouse Lawyers Speak. We're part of sort of a, a coalition of a lot of different groups that will be organizing many things. But this one tomorrow is truly historic. You want to be at San Quentin on the 50th anniversary of Black August. I really urge you to come out and join us. One more time, the details. We definitely okay. want to make sure people have an opportunity. Okay. So tomorrow, August 21st, Remembering George Jackson Arts and Culture Demo. Meet at Larkspur Ferry Terminal at 10 a.m. in uh, San Rafael. Going to park the cars, walk up the road to the West Gate, hold a rally from 11 to 1. And then we're going to be coming back to Oakland because there's going to be another Black Office celebration that's happening at the Fremery, a.k.a. Little Bobby Hutton Park, starting at 1 o'clock. So we're going to do a whole day dedicated to the memory of Black August. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Judy, uh, for all the great okay. work that you do. Really appreciate it. And thank you, Stay Dennis, safe. for helping us uh, spread the word. Thank you. No problem. Our It's our work here at uh, Flashpoint Pacifica Radio, KPFA in the Bay Area. We're done for another week. We'll see you uh, on Monday. Have a beautiful weekend and uh, stay safe.